Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, it's been an interesting week in the news. Another great week. Another great week. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. We're going to talk about President Trump's decision to pull troops out of Syria and the impending Turkish assault on northern Syria. We'll talk a little NBA news. This yeah. has become sort of an NBA podcast because yeah. your boys with Ennis Cantor, but it'll dust up with China over the issue of Hong Kong. A little impeachment news with a special focus on Trump's utterly unqualified U.S. ambassador to the European Union, dip into North Korea, talk about a special treaty that helps us monitor Russian military movements and a secretive Russian military unit that does really fun stuff like assassinations and mm. uh, espionage. So that's terrifying. And then we'll check in on our friend Boris Johnson over in the U.K. Our guest today is Washington Post Beirut Bureau Chief Liz Sly. She called in to help us understand the view from the ground in Syria. And then this building protest movement in Iraq that's not gotten a lot of coverage, but yeah. could be a really a lot big of people. Deal. A lot of people got killed. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people have been injured and killed. And so it's something we should be watching. Before we get to the news, just two quick housekeeping items. I hope you guys have checked out America Dissected by Abdul Sayed. The third episode is about the fact that prescription drug prices in the United States are way higher than anywhere else and about our fucked up political system and how it is caved to pharma. It is an amazing series. Abdul is so smart. Uh, you will learn a ton. And he is funny and empathetic in everything you want in a host. So please check it out. The other thing I want to flag is that there are some really important uh, elections coming up in Virginia where Democrats just need to flip two seats in the House of Delegates and two seats in the state Senate to win back the majority, which means we'll have a lot more power to draw fair lines when we redistrict in 2021. So if you go to votesaveamerica.com, you can find volunteer opportunities. You can also go check out our Fuck Gerrymandering Fund, which helps send money to some Virginia candidates in some of the closest races and make sure they have the resources they need in the final stretch. So votesaveamerica.com, check it out. And with that, let's talk about the news, Ben. Let's start with Syria. So at 11 p.m. or so on Sunday night, the time when you normally put out a White House statement, the White House (laughs) released a statement announcing that Turkey is going to move forward with this long-planned military operation in northern Syria. Uh, He also said the U.S. would pull 100, 150 or so military personnel out of the area. Um, Right before we started taping today on Tuesday, I saw a Reuters report that suggested Turkey was already hitting targets. So it sounds like this this fighting might be happening already. Trump is going to try to portray his decision as getting U.S. troops out and handing the fight against ISIS over to Turkey. But in reality, this is far more likely to harm the anti-ISIS campaign because Turkish forces will attack some of the Kurdish fighters who have been our allies in the fight against ISIS. Uh, It's a little complicated, so I'll do a bit of setup here. So Kurdish fighters make up a big chunk of the Syrian Democratic forces who have been doing a lot of the fighting against ISIS and have lost 
thousands of fighters in combat in, in places like Raqqa, where it was really brutal, like hand-to-hand, house-to-house combat. Additionally, the, the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, they're holding an estimated 11,000 ISIS fighters in these like makeshift jails. So they are really on the ground, like leading the anti-ISIS campaign and doing some really important work to help stop ISIS from returning. So the question you might ask is, why the hell would Turkey attack them, which is a good one. Turkey's stated objective in this military campaign is to clear a 20-mile deep safe zone on the Syrian side of the Syria-Turkey border so that they can then resettle Syrian refugees who are currently in Turkey into camps in that safe zone. But the problem is that Turkey views many of these Kurdish forces in Syria as an extension of a group called the PKK, which has been fighting for independence in Turkey for a long time and is designated as a terrorist group both in Turkey and in the U.S. So if the Turks roll their troops into Syria, the Kurdish forces will likely stop fighting ISIS. There's a chance they'll stop guarding these ISIS prison facilities and they'll start fighting the Turks. Uh, And if we let this happen, it is very likely the Turks will get slaughtered by the Turkish military and by ISIS all at once. They'll just get squeezed. So it'll be truly awful. Um, Trump was immediately criticized by Republicans for this move. And I want to dive into why Republicans seem to get so alarmed by this issue later, because it's notable. But uh, in an effort to spin his decision on Monday, uh, Trump tweeted, quote, if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, consider Mm. to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey I've done before, parens, exclamation point. So uh, (laughs) we are now abandoning the Kurds and threatening to economically obliterate a NATO ally. Ben, that's a lot of background. Uh, Let's pause there. What'd you make of this? And can you talk about the U.S. mission in in Northeast Syria and what you think will happen if the Turks start this campaign? Yeah, I mean, I I guess a little background might be helpful here for people. So we started the counter-ISIS campaign in 2014, um, and we were going to be using a lot of air power, but we needed partners who would actually fight against ISIS on the ground. And there was a big battle in northern Syria in a town called Kobani that ISIS was seeking to take, and that would kind of consolidate their control over that part of Syria. And there were some Kurds fighting against ISIS on the ground. We started airdropping weapons to them, and then we opened up a land route to get weapons to them. And lo and behold, they started fighting back, and they won this battle for Kobani. And then we started a process of steadily arming these Kurds and ultimately bringing in some Arabs as well into the Syrian Democratic Forces. And these are literally the people who fought and won the battle against ISIS. So tens of thousands of Kurds were killed fighting alongside U.S. Special Forces who were helping them kind of plan their operations, giving them intelligence. Also, U.S. air power was providing their air support. And that went all the way to Raqqa. And so the counter-ISIS campaign that began in 2014 under Obama and that ended with the fall of Raqqa last year literally could not, would not even have been fought if these Kurds didn't take the lead on the ground and essentially taking back all of this area in northern Syria and eastern Syria that had previously been under control of ISIS. At the same time, the Turks were always threatening to go in and clear out these Kurds and saying that they were an extension of the PKK. And so part of what we did is we had U.S. troops, special forces, in these areas. And frankly, they were kind of a bit of a tripwire. You know, the the Turks weren't going to go into some combat area uh, if there were going to be U.S. troops there. And so essentially we were protecting the Kurds from this Turkish operation. What seems to have happened is Trump has kind of lost interest in this fight because Raqqa has fallen, the geographic territory that ISIS controlled is gone. But as we talked about on this pod, 
ISIS is still very much present and would be looking to regenerate itself as they've done in the past when they've gotten an opportunity. So sounds like what happened is Type Erdogan calls up Trump, one authoritarian to another, (laughs) (laughs) uses, I need a favor though, Uh you know, uh, Uh uh, the favor is, you know, why don't you pull out those U.S. troops and uh, we'll handle ISIS and oh, by the way, we'll do our operation into northern Syria and and the reality is these Kurds are very vulnerable to, uh, you know, a Turkish operation like this. They, they're they great fighters on the ground, but they depended on us to provide them all kinds of support in order to conduct the operations they did. And so we could be in a position where, number one, these Kurds who helped us deal with the threat to our security, ISIS, uh, could be massacred. Number two, you could have a much more violent situation reemerge in north northern eastern Syria that's the kind of place where ISIS could regenerate itself, so it could also put us directly at risk. This is not the important point. <laughs> Apparently, Trump was supposed to meet with Erdogan at Unga. I yeah. bet he didn't happen because he was having an ongoing meltdown about impeachment, so they yeah. laid on this call. Could you imagine being the staffer that like drags your ass into the White House <laughs> at like 6 p.m. on Sunday, being like, oh, man, staff this call, I'll be home in time to watch the session, and then 11 p.m. rolls around, and you're drafting a statement announcing that we are pulling out of northern Syria and about to allow our closest allies in the region to get fucking slaughtered. Yeah, and look, Erdogan's a notoriously kind of difficult and prickly guy. Yeah, uh, I used to have this joke with Obama because Erdogan would always ask for what we would call a pull-aside meeting, which is not a formal bilat. So it's like, oh, we'll just meet, we'll pull aside, you know, Erdogan and go to another room with the G20 and meet for 15 minutes. Those meetings would always go an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so Obama's thing was always like, an, uh, you know, if it's a pull aside with Erdogan, it's an hour and a half meeting. If it's a bilat, it's two hours. But Erdogan is a very inflexible guy when you're talking to him. He doesn't try to meet you in the middle. He just says, here's what I want. And you have to be firm in saying, no, I cannot do that. Uh, Here's what I can do. And it just seems like Trump got rolled. And so part of what the story is here is that art of the deal, this guy can just get steamrolled by a tough interlocutor. And Erdogan just kind of ran circles around him. In fact, uh, Newsweek quoted a current NSC staffer who leaked to them that Trump just got rolled. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Basically in your words. That's what happened, yeah. yeah. Clearly. Uh, Yeah, it's funny when you talk about the – if you – underestimate the length of time a meeting is going to take for Barack Obama, he will remember it forever. He (laughs) still calls Michael Neal 20 clicks because a photo line was 100 people, not 20. But we digress. Okay, so on Monday, uh, Trump signed this trade deal with Japan, and he took some questions about (laughs) uh, Syria and some other issues around it. And what was... He really stayed on message for that trade deal. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. he really did. Those poor, like, Japanese businessmen are behind him (laughs) as he's, like, ranting about all this stuff. But... The thing that was surprising to me watching him was it was honestly the most convincing, calm, like cogent argument I've heard him make about any policy discussion, any policy position ever. Uh, In part, I think, because he was honest about how complicated this all is. He he talked about how difficult it will be to deal with the tens of thousands of ISIS fighters and their families who are being held now, and how European capitals refuse to take their own nationals back, let alone other bad actors. Uh, He mentioned how there are big, powerful countries in the region like Turkey and Russia and Iran who have money and they have infrastructure and they can share the burden. He said he wanted to move these U.S. troops away from the border uh, because he was worried about them being in a dangerous position if this Turkish operation happens. And generally, he wants to bring our troops home from the wars we're fighting abroad because he said we shouldn't be the world's policeman and we shouldn't inject ourselves into centuries-old conflicts and tribal wars like what's happening between Turkey and the Kurds and that Russia and China want us to stay in Syria and get bogged down because it benefits them. And so Mm -hmm. 
Ben, like, there's holes in that logic uh, big enough to drive a truck through. Yeah, yeah. But, like, it's not totally wrong, and it sure as hell sounds convincing. So I, I know you watched this piece, this uh, this press conference, too. What did you make of his argument in terms of, of the policy and the politics? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we do need to take it at face value. Look, um, first, he's not wrong that this is incredibly complicated and there are contradictory kind of objectives for the U.S. We have a NATO ally in Turkey that is worried about these uh, Kurds. We've got Kurdish allies who fought with us. But you know what? It is complicated. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's kind of like part of the job, job right? Like yeah. the job is complicated and it's the Middle East. So it's even more complicated. And yes, are there centuries old conflicts? Absolutely. But like the reality is part of what we had to do just to manage this, I remember, is a tremendous amount of dip diplomacy with the Turks, right? Mm -hmm. So we'd be supporting these Kurds and we'd be sending the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to Turkey for dialogue. And our counter-ISIS envoy, Brett McGurk, was constantly in Turkey explaining our logic. We, just so we didn't have a Kurdish-only force, which kind of spooked them, we recruited all these Arabs to fight alongside the Kurds to show it was multi-sectarian, that there were people uh, of <coughs> different uh, ethnic groups in, in Syria who wanted to get rid of ISIS. And, you know, part of, you know, the job of president and <laughs> being in national security and foreign policy is managing complexity. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, he makes some interesting points, but you're just looking at this kind of narrow problem of how do we keep ISIS from reemerging? How do we not disincentivize people from ever trusting us again? Because the risk of selling out the Kurds is the next time we need someone to help us deal with the terrorist threat, they might not think we're reliable. Um, and then, you know, how do you go to Tur Turkey and say, look— while we understand your concerns about the PKK, this is not in your territory, and we will be there, and we will try to make sure that this is not about strengthening the PKK. It's about strengthening these Kurds in Syria, and you just are kind of constantly managing it. On the ending wars point, which I'm obviously sympathetic to, I think the other reality here is these. Are, this is not like Afghanistan. The, I mean, we've not been taking on a lot of casualties in Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I can't even uh, recall the last one we took. Yeah, Brett said no Americans were killed in a Brett McGurk in a yeah. tweet storm he did. This isn't like we're losing guys. They're basically there, you know, as both an insurance policy for the Kurds and just to kind of help organize them and mm -hmm. to get them intelligence and things like that. So it's a deployment. But I do think those of us who want to end the wars, you know, do have to draw a distinction between guys in Afghanistan who are out in the fight taking casualties, you know, versus this kind of ambiguous special forces deployment, which again, you might be against that. Okay, that's fair, but you do have to separate it out from, you know, essentially the U.S. being in a war like Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. I also think, do we want it? And we talked about this the last time you tried to sell the Kurds. You could negotiate some process to get these guys out of there, and I could be totally for that. That's not what happened here. Like, he surprised everybody in his own government, including yep. those troops and including the Defense Department, by saying, oh, they're going to be out and the Turks can do their operation. What you'd be trying to do is negotiate very carefully. These guys will be leaving over this period of time. We need to get these assurances from Turkey as a part of that, that they won't go into certain parts of northern Syria. There are parts of northern Syria that are essentially protected for these Kurds. And, and, and you know, it's a negotiated end to our presence there. And the problem is mm -hmm. he short-circuited that process to get to the end he wanted, which is just pulling these guys out. So happened to be what Erdogan was also asking him to do, rather than saying, okay, I'd like to get these guys out over the next X period of time. Let's negotiate a process for doing that. It also kind of removes us from being able 
to try to be more of a part of how do you seek a broader peace settlement in all of Syria? How do you try to rebuild some of these areas that were destroyed, you know, in the fight against ISIS? You know, we're just kind of washing our hands of that too right. and, and, and leaving it to Russia and Turkey and Iran to kind of figure this out. Yeah. And, you know, that's, we, sh- we at least want to be at that table. Yeah, it is naive at best, dangerous at worst to think that uh, handing a problem off to them and saying yours now means they will actually deal with it in a way that we'd want them to. Uh, at, at the risk of um, uh, making my own head explode, you're seeing a lot of uh, lazy comparisons to Obama getting out of Iraq, mostly by uh, Lindsey Graham, who's just the world's worst person uh, recently, uh, he was suggesting that this was an Obama approach because Trump decided to unilaterally pull like 150 guys out of this yeah. region of northern Syria and somehow compared that to the uh, Iraqis voting to ask yeah. 10,000 U.S. troops to leave their country after we had spent a decade there building up a 400,000-person strong Iraqi yeah. defense forces. It's just... Uh, the stupidity of these comparisons drives me nuts. Yeah, you covered it. I mean, you know, we don't have to fully relive the thing. I, I think that the more notable point is just the kind of intellectual dishonesty here, right? Yeah. Because, okay, Obama built this relationship with these Kurds, began arming them in the counter-ISIS campaign, and now, you know, Trump is pulling the plug. And and Lindsey Graham can't even just make a point on the merits. It has to somehow be Obama's fault, you know? Like, know. and because Obama initiated the policy... Like, he has to go back to something else Obama did, which is not leaving a residual force of 10,000 troops in Iraq, when the Iraqi government literally would not give us any authority to leave that residual force there. To me, what it really shows is that they they can't even, like, frame... We're three years after Obama here, and, like, they're still shadowboxing Obama because they don't want to recognize the clear and present danger that their president, Donald right. Trump, poses to our national security. Yeah, I think a lot of offices deal with the uh, the, the compliment sandwich where every criticism has yeah. to be glued between two sort of saccharine compliments. Lindsey Graham offers all criticism of Trump with like a healthy spoonful of Obama shit talking for yeah, no reason. Yeah, maybe he thinks that's how Trump will actually listen to him. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, so you sort of alluded to this. In, in December of last year, Ben, uh, Trump basically did exactly what he's doing now. He declared that ISIS was defeated he said all U.S. service members are coming home from Syria. And just like today, I mean, Republicans freaked out and then he backtracked. Um, And interestingly, it also seems like the military just kind of slow walked his decision to buy time, which let's be honest, is not a good or acceptable outcome either. Like it or not, like he's the commander in chief. And it's weird when you hear reporting about how they ignored him, but I I digress. But so, okay, this week, Trump announces this Syria decision late Sunday night. Once again, Republicans go nuts, criticize Trump in ways that you never, ever see them do. And I think the the important question is why? Um, It is true that giving the Turkish military the green light to slaughter the Kurds, the guys we've been fighting with against ISIS, is just like morally wrong and repugnant. But so is sexual assault. So is holding uh, military aid to Ukraine ransom for dirt on Joe Biden, right? So I've been trying to figure out why this is the breaking point uh, for Republicans. Every time, yeah. Yeah, and I think part of it is, you know, right, it's obviously their right to criticize him. But I also think that part of it might be lobbying by evangelical Christians in the U.S. because they're worried that these religious minorities in the region will just get slaughtered. Uh, including an ancient Christian a lot community. Of Christians, yeah. yeah, like this ancient community that speaks Aramaic, yeah. which is what Jesus spoke. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's probably why <laughs> yeah. this week you saw Pat Robertson <laughs> condemn Trump's decision. And the last time he he floated a Syria withdrawal, he got attacked by the Family Research Council. These are yeah. usually his closest defenders because we know he's a um, he's a devout Christian himself who lives the word of God. But I don't know, like, uh, why do you think that 
the only thing that breaks through the Republican psyche and offends them these days is ending wars. Yeah, I, it's remarkable to watch um, because, you know, this is the same thing where, like, Jim Mattis, this is the only thing he ever raised his voice right, about. He quit. Right, he quit over this. Um, and, and let's, you know, be very clear, you know, putting kids in cages, separating families, kind of selling at the foreign policy of the United States of Vladimir Putin, trashing the U.S. intelligence community, you know, colluding and aiming to collude with <laughs> or pressure Ukraine to interfere in our election, trashing alliances, all of these things have been okay, but yeah. this isn't. And also, I should add, breaking international agreements and not standing by alliances has been the core of the Trump foreign policy for three years. That's a really good point. And that's what he did to the Kurds, that's right? So, so like, th- it's utterly predictive. This is not out of character for no. Trump. This is very in character for Trump. So it's more jarring to see the Republican response. I think part of it is, yeah, part of it could be the uh, evangelical Christian focus on this. I met with those uh, Syrian Christians it's fascinating that they really do seem like they walked out of the Bible or something. Uh, um, you know, they're they're an important community. I also think that the U.S. military, um, you know, Republicans love to kind of wrap themselves in the military, and obviously the military's been resistant uh, to this move. And but I, I, there's a broader point here, which is that. You know, the Republicans have constantly tried to define themselves as being these kind of reflexive hawks on Mm -hmm. national security. And so if you look at it, Afghanistan and Syria are the two places where a guy like Lindsey Graham stands up to Trump. And part of what's interesting to me about that is they don't even understand, like, his appeal. (laughs) You know, like his appeal, a big part of his appeal is actually saying he'd get out of these wars, right? So there's this kind of interesting thing where the Republicans are, are, are tone deaf to a message that Trump has used that is actually a politically effective message, which is right. what the hell are we doing in Syria? What the hell are we doing in Afghanistan? It's time to get out of there. And they're so kind of saturated in this kind of D.C. militarized version of foreign policy, version of toughness that has to do with kind of being militarily present in as many countries as possible, uh, having, a, you know, uh, obviously... Uh, an outsized role for concern for mm-hmm. you know Christian minorities as part of that, um, but t- to me it just points up the kind of abject hypocrisy because if you're worried about this because of the logic that we aren't standing by allies and we're breaking international agreements, how can you not have been worried about all the other times for the last three years that Trump has screwed over allies and broken international agreements? Yeah, it is very bizarre. Um, I think they also just kind of feel one of the things is interesting relevant to the impeachment though. Mm-hmm. Is there's a herd mentality? Yes. So it's like they feel comfortable because they all do this together. So it's not like just Mitt Romney with a sad tweet. It's like 20 Republicans all put out statements yeah. about Ted Syria. Cruz. And suddenly they all feel comfortable doing it. So yeah, collective it, yeah. action is their great weakness. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we'll keep watching this one because uh, hopefully this thing – hopefully he walks this back in, in some way. I mean it's like not that many guys. You just leave him there. But uh, who knows? We'll see. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware.
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike, there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Let's go to the NBA for a minute. So if you guys have not been following the story, last week, the Houston Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey, tweeted, quote, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. So that was a reference to the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. We've talked about this before. There's a bunch of protests that have going on for several months now. They were initially about a bill that would have allowed individuals in Hong Kong to get extradited to China and then sucked into their horrible legal system, which is terrifying. Uh, but, you know, over time, they've become a bigger movement about freedom and basic human rights uh, for the people of Hong Kong. So, uh, that tweet is something I think literally everyone should be able to get behind. But the Houston Rockets are very popular in China, in part because uh, a Chinese player named Yao Ming used to be on the team. So the NBA generally and the Houston Rockets particularly look at China and they see uh, a, a billion potential fans and a billion potential wallets. So uh, I assume that the popularity of the Rockets earned Maury's tweet some extra attention. And I don't know how to describe the response from China other than that they just freaked out. They, Mori was denounced by the Chinese government. He was denounced by random Chinese businesses. He was denounced by the Chinese Basketball Association, which is now led by Yao Ming. Um, and then and then everybody in the U.S. just caved. The Rockets owner publicly threw Mori under the bus. Uh, league sources were speculating that he would be fired to various publications. And then the NBA released this pathetic statement calling Mori's tweet uh, regrettable, and they distanced itself from, from him. Uh, China apparently smelled weakness in this initial response. They did what they always do. They doubled down. They released another statement saying, quote, we oppose Silver's claim to support Mori's right of free expression and that they, quote, believe that any speech that challenges national sovereignty and social stability is not within the scope of freedom of speech. 
holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Just put your cards on the table. <laughs> yeah, put your cards on the yeah. table. Uh, so they're referencing uh, NBA commissioner Adam Silver there when I said Silver. So Adam Silver had to release another statement Tuesday to try to clean up the botched cleanup where he said that the NBA is not going to regulate what players and employees say uh, on various issues. Uh, he's also traveling to China for meetings where I tell try to smooth this all out. I should say like, you know, the other league commissioners like Roger Goodell are a bunch of fucking idiots, yeah, but yeah, Adam yeah. Silver is He's like a good legitimately yeah. impressive guy. Either way, they made a mess of this. Um, there are some issues when you're dealing with China, like the Dalai Lama yeah. or Taiwan, that you know are red lines and you know if you speak out on them, the response will be like disproportionate and predictable. China freaking out about Hong Kong seems pretty new to me and a little bit ridiculous. It seems like they're trying to send an early signal to intimidate the rest of the yeah. world to stay out of this sandbox. Um, curious what you think about all of this. But also, if you think there's any risk for Xi Jinping here, like you have hundreds of millions of Chinese nationals who just want to watch some hoops. And yeah. now Xi Jinping might rob them of that <laughs> pleasure because of something in Hong Kong. Like, that seems stupid. Yeah, I, I think there's a China angle and then the NBA angle. And this is a fascinating story to unpack. The first thing is what the Chinese did here is clearly deliberate and manufactured, right? Right. So I honestly do not believe there was any natural groundswell in response to Daryl Morey's tweet, right? <laughs> the general manager of the Rockets. <laughs> the guy you look to for everything. Yeah, <laughs> tweets something that literally anybody could, you know, and American politicians on both parties have been tweeting the same thing. The Chinese clearly decided, and by the way, Twitter is not even widely available in China. Right. So the Chinese clearly decided to take this tweet and make it an example to the NBA of don't fuck with Hong Kong, mm -hmm. right? And so they take this anodyne tweet, they, they gin it up, their, their state media kicks into gear, they're threatening to shut down NBA businesses, they're sending all kinds of messages about you know how this is endorsing separatism <clears throat> when that's not what the tweet says, no. it's just endorsing basic human rights. And this is what the Chinese do. If you are an American business trying to get in there or American media company trying to get in there, they try to bully you and send a message of if you want to play ball here, you're basically going to have to sign up to our you know, view of politics and all these different issues. And so they wanted to test whether they could bully the NBA into submission and silence. And I think the NBA market in China is already worth $4 billion. So there's a lot of money yeah. on the table, right? Because basketball, I think, is the most popular American sport there. Now – that's what the Chinese are doing. It's fairly obvious. The NBA got it totally wrong out of the box because they clearly looked like Maury had done something wrong. Mm -hmm. you know. And this was a problem of Maury's own creation, and they're apologizing. The, the statement that they put out in Chinese, or at least the Chinese translation, kind of went further than the English one in saying that, that, that Maury hurt the feelings of all the Chinese people <laughs> over this. you know, And it's kind of absurd. I think D Adam Silver appropriately walked back that statement and said, look, mm -hmm. like we're not going to police the speech of our employees, our players, or our team employees. We're just not going to tell them what, to, what they can and cannot say. And that's the right principle position to take. But the broader point is it's also right to lay down to the Chinese. Here are our markers, right? Uh, like we're, we're not going to infringe upon the free speech rights of our players and our employees just to get into your market. And you should know that now too. You know, and whatever relationship the NBA and China uh, works out over time is going to have to account for this tension between China's extreme sensitivity about certain issues and the NBA's commitment to not policing the speech of its people. And better for an American business to be clear with the Chinese up front. 
here's what we will and won't do. And, you know, part of what the NBA could say is like, look, we respect you have a different political system. We kind of, you know, we respect that when we're in China, like we're not going to attack your politics. But if we have individuals who are part of the NBA community and speak their mind, we're not going to tell them they can't do that. And that's kind of the deal, right? Mm -hmm. And and we did the same thing. Like they they would try to go around and bully people into not meeting with the Dalai Lama, you know? Mm -hmm. And we said, look, and they said he was a separatist and he's a terrorist and all these things. And we'd be like, no, look, we're just, we're going to meet with the Dalai Lama. We're going to do it and we're going to do it regularly. And each time they'd protest, but they learned to live with it, right? And so I, I do think the message for an American company and major American brand like the NBA is if you succumb to bullying, it's like any bully, then they'll just bully you more, mm -hmm. you know, and they'll bully you on more things. You have to be very clear in saying, no, look, here's what we're not willing to do. We're not willing to tell people they can't tweet about certain things or talk about certain things. And that's it. And that's the nature of this relationship. And yeah, as you said, Tommy, if you want to keep all NBA basketball games off Chinese television because of that, then, you know, you won't get our product. And yeah. frankly, I think it's important for, for people, companies to, to stand for that, to, to, you know, the NBA is already profitable, you know, might they lose some money in China? Yes. Is it worth losing your soul <laughs> to get nope. into that market? <laughs> no. And I, I, and I think in, in, in all these authoritarian questions, I, I would like to live in a country where we have institutions, companies, businesses, universities, et cetera, who are willing to take a principled stand on something, um, rather than just to, bend over this kind of bullying. Yeah, and look, uh, I run a, a business that has no chance of ever being yeah. uh, successful in China or allowed in China, right? So what the fuck do I care? I don't know anything about this. But, you know, look, it, it's a, what, $10 trillion economy that if you're Nike, if you're Reebok, if you're all these companies you want to do business in. But even even if you're a startup like Airbnb or something like that, I mean, you already have all these enormous hurdles you have to leap. You have to establish some joint venture partnership and take a minority position yeah. in a yeah. Chinese-based company to be able to operate there. There's a constant risk of intellectual property theft. There is a opaque at best system with princelings that have to get paid off. Like, I mean, there's already massive impediments. Like, again, I don't know anything about uh, running a Fortune 500 business that needs the Chinese market, but boy, would this make me nervous about basing any of my business plans or growth over the next decade into uh, on Chinese market access because we're in the middle of a trade war. Xi Jinping is, is locking down everything. And then like a beloved sport can get uh, a fastball to the head like this. Like who's next? Yeah. And because it also gets at like, what is the nature of the appeal of something like the NBA, right? I mean, part of the reason why the NBA has become so much more popular over the last five, 10 years is because they have these individuals who are interesting characters, right? Mm -hmm. And LeBron has been very vocal about his politics. That has helped the NBA not right. hurt it, right? So, so like, I think if, if suddenly the NBA is a bunch of automatons who are reciting, you know, kind of Chinese state propaganda lines about things like Hong Kong, it actually becomes a less interesting product over time, right? Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, same thing. I could say, as a foreign policy analyst, I could calibrate everything I say to not offend the Chinese government, but then I wouldn't be saying anything interesting, right? right. And so I, I think that like the compromises imposed on people to do business or to, to have a foothold in these authoritarian systems, you know, ultimately diminish the value of what you have to offer in the first place. I also I was in Singapore recently at a conference, and I did notice that some of the kind of some of the people there were kind of uh, you know taking a Chinese line on. Um, 
you know, these uh, protesters are must be paid by Taiwan or something. Or, and then you just say, like, guys, come on, two million people turned out, right? right. Like, they're not all paid by some foreign power. Like, th- there's clearly something happening here. And yes, it, might there be some core of these protesters who, are, who have been violent, who have been separatist, who might have some foreign support? That's possible. But that certainly doesn't explain what's happened in Hong Kong. It no. certainly doesn't explain two million people coming out. What explains it is the fact that they don't want to live under a totalitarian system. It's pretty obvious. And, and that's why I think once we start compromising the most basic forms of free speech, like Daryl Morey deciding to tweet, you know, stand with Hong Kong, stand for freedom or whatever it was. If we can't even say that, yeah. then we're really truly in a new world. Yeah. I mean, I like I'm glad that Adam Silver stepped in and, and cleaned up the cleaned up because I, I think a lot of people were inspired by, impressed by the NBA when they were letting their players express a variety of opinions on political and social issues yeah. where when the NFL was pretending yeah. that Colin Kaepernick didn't exist yeah. and, and letting themselves get browbeaten by our uh, Xi Jinping, Donald Trump, via tweet every Sunday for months and months and months. Yeah. But uh, yeah, not a not a great early handling of the challenge. Here. No, no, no. And But it shows you it's a great – the reason this is an important story is it's a window into choices that a lot of American institutions are going to have to make about mm-hmm. China in the coming years, right? Yep. Because the Chinese are taking a harder and harder line. And what are you willing to compromise to get that market? Yep. Uh, and when is it too much? Yep. Uh, let's do a little impeachment news. I'll give you guys a little uh, little dessert here. So fix. we want to get our fix. We want to focus today on a guy named Gordon Sundland. So on Tuesday, he was supposed to testify before the House Intelligence, Foreign Affairs, and Oversight Committees as part of the impeachment inquiry. But the State Department... The heroic Mike Pompeo, friend of all investigations, Benghazi cheerleader, yes. blocked him from being part of an impeachment inquiry. So that's notable. Um, and I think everyone, you probably heard of Gordon Sundland because of the text he sent about the ongoing efforts to extort Ukraine for dirt on Joe Biden. Sondland is the genius who is always saying, call me. Or like, there is no quid pro quo. I do not know what of you speak. Like all the dumb sort of ass covering statements for yeah. the records that do not absolve I did him. not do crimes. I did not do crimes. But so the bigger question for us today is like, who is this guy? Why is he involved at all? Right. So Gordon Sondland is the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. And unless I miss some very big news, yeah. Ukraine is not part of the European Union. So he also has no diplomatic experience. He basically ran a hotel chain and he's a big Republican donor. But he wasn't even a Trump donor. Initially, he was a Jeb Bush guy, which I thought was like Jeb. A, an unforgivable sin in Trump world. Uh, at one point during the campaign, he publicly distanced himself from Trump. But he miraculously got this ambassador job by only donating a million dollars through four different anonymous LLCs to the Trump <laughs> <laughs> inaugural committee. So that's how things work. That, that, that's legal corruption yeah, right there, yeah. I guess. Uh, weirdly, Ron Wyden vouched for him, despite Sondland having no relevant mm. experience. I guess there's a state-based relationship. Whatever. But uh, So, Ben, I did a little Googling here, a lot of heavy research for this episode. <laughs> so the previous U.S. ambassador to the EU is a guy named Anthony Gardner. Now, yeah. he was like a finance guy. He was appointed by Obama in 2013. He was not a career diplomat either. But let me read you his resume for a second. So he was director for European affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration for a couple of years. He has a BA from Harvard, uh, a degree in international relations from Oxford, a JD from Columbia, (laughs) and a master's in finance. This guy sounds annoying. He speaks, I know, (laughs) I I dislike this guy already. He speaks French, Italian, Spanish, and German. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, okay. It's like Pete Buttigieg. Listen, like like we were talking about this before. Obama didn't have a perfect record. Like 
Uh, he Obama appointed some donors to yes. be ambassadors. Yes. It happened in a lot yes. of places. Some of them were fucking fantastic, like Matthew Barzin. Some of them were terrible, like the guy who humiliated himself at a hearing whose name I don't remember <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and will block out. But like, this is a pretty big role. And I think it's it's important for everyone to understand how weird it is for Sondland to have this job in the first place, to be a part of talks involving Ukraine, given that the EU has no role in this discussion, and to be involved at all because the president personally asked him to be. So I'll just leave it at that. Like, Ben, what do you make of uh, our friend Gordon and yeah. like all that he is doing here? Well, it's actually it actually kind of points to the heart of the issue because you're right. The EU ambassador would not normally be involved with Ukraine. Interestingly, the only scenario in which the EU ambassador might be involved is we coordinate with the EU in imposing sanctions on Russia, mm, you know, uh, uh, for what they did to Ukraine. And we might coordinate with the EU in the provision of assistance. This guy, in other words, should be entirely only involved in this account in support of <laughs> Providing assistance to Ukraine right. or maintaining the sanctions we have in place with Europe on Ukraine, he's doing the opposite in this in this you know weird scheme that Trump has concocted. He's getting involved in pressuring the Ukrainian government to do certain things, investigating Trump's political opponents as a quid pro quo for getting that assistance that he should normally be advocating for, and. It speaks to the way in which he views the State Department that that Donald Trump knows that career people are going to be uncomfortable carrying out crimes Mm -hmm. (laughs) and acting against the interests of the United States. The interests of the United States here is clearly a strong Ukraine that can stand up for itself against Russia, right? So he knows, okay, our ambassador in Kiev wasn't on board that project. She didn't want to meet with Rudy Giuliani and be a part of this, so he fires her. Mm -hmm. Then they know this guy, you know, Bill Taylor, who they put in as charge probably not going to be that comfortable doing it either. And the text show that. He's like, I think it's crazy <laughs> to leverage foreign assistance uh, in order to get help with the political campaign. That's what the career guy said on text, yep. right? Then Very have, smartly laying down a, a real record. Yeah, laying down a marker, right? And then we should just note that Sondland reportedly called Trump yeah. in the intervening five hours between that message being sent and his response, which was some cover my ass, like, I think you are mistaken. There yes. is no quid pro quo. But anyway, sorry. No, no. Well, and then you have Kurt Volker, who was once a diplomat, then was out. But he's kind of in that world, so he's kind of in between, right? And he is acting in between. He's trying to thread the needle, right? So you got the career people, the career diplomats who know this is wrong and either want nothing to do with it or they're writing down so that the record shows, Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a good idea. Then you've got this guy, Volker, who's kind of in the middle, right? He used to be a diplomat, but then he kind of ran the McCain Institute, so he's been appointed by Trump. He's trying to finesse it. And then there's just this complete and utter hack (laughs) hanging out in Brussels who's sending these texts to these people in Kiev being like, you know, how set up this meeting and get Rudy his meetings and like, you know, here's what President Trump wants. Why on earth... Is this complete unqualified hack camping out in Brussels and getting up in the shit of people who actually know what they're doing in Kiev to try to get them to do a crime? And he's talking about like you know the names of of key advisors to the president of Ukraine. Like that's not his business. No. He's not a diplomat in Ukraine. He should have nothing to do with Zelensky or the people around him. He should have to do with the EU that Trump is declared as like one of our top geopolitical adversaries here. So what it shows to me is Trump has, he, he, he knows he has to corrupt foreign policy to get them to commit his crimes. And he can't just ask the ambassador to do it, get the ambassador out of the way, get 
my political guy in Brussels to be the hammer to get these people to do something. Then these people get uncomfortable. They're like, uh, we don't necessarily like these crimes. This guy calls back to Trump, tells Trump what's going on. Trump's like, I've got a great idea. Why don't you write no quid pro quo? And then we won't <laughs> let you testify in front of Congress. That's what's happening here. And it just it just shows you that they can't they're trying to completely distort and corrupt the foreign policy of the United States. And they can only do that with hacks like this who answer to nothing other than Trump, no national interest. Yeah, your, your million dollar henchman. Uh, this is not, again, this is a side point, but it is worth noting that Sondland and all these guys are having very sensitive policy conversations via text message. Yeah. We just spent an entire election yeah. focused on Hillary's private server and her emails. And I don't, I'm not relitigating that. But the stuff these guys are texting about, like sensitive diplomatic conversations with Trump and foreign leaders, military aid to Ukraine. That is information that foreign adversaries, in particular Russia, would love to have. And it should be classified. In fact, I bet it was. And the whole team is just doing their business on their personal phones. At the bare minimum, it should be on State Department email. But like these guys are just dicking around on text and iMessage as the State Department is going back and looking at every email sent to Hillary Clinton by her team at the time years ago and potentially retroactively classifying messages to put them in legal jeopardy. Yeah. It's just like, it's so frustrating. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, the, the 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 baseline is if you are doing anything that is government business, you're supposed to do it on a government email account because that is a matter of public record, mm-hmm. right? So classification issues aside, even though those do come into play, like the whole idea is you put this stuff on the government servers precisely so you can't go and commit crimes on the side so that the public has the capacity to know. And so the only valid criticism they had of Hillary's server was that. It's it's not really the classification stuff because we've talked about that. That's kind of bullshit. It's like Hillary Clinton mentioned she talked to a foreign leader and they're like, oh, that's classified. secret, yeah. No, but the thing that was a fair criticism was, well, creating a separate server means that this isn't being stored for public record. Now, again, the problem with that is the people Hillary was emailing were generally at the State Department. So it was still getting <laughs> memorialized in the public record. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason why their criticisms of Hillary are such bullshit is that Hillary was emailing all these people on State Department email accounts. Right. These people are just texting each other. God only knows what we don't see. Can you imagine the text between Jared and MBS? You know, nope. uh, like the the WhatsApp chains the between signals, yeah. you know Ivanka Trump and her China business partners or whatever. You know, the signals taking place between CC and you know some creepy guy uh, who, who who works around Trump. I mean, so th- the irony is that Trump's whole criticism of Hillary Clinton that she was hiding information on another server seems to be precisely how his entire administration conducts business, particularly when they want to commit crimes. Yeah. Uh, Okay. We're going to do a little uh, foreign policy uh, speed dating to close because we got a bunch more. But uh, the first thing is North Korea. I can't believe this is like the seventh item on the list given what happened. So last week we talked about how uh, John Bolton, the former national security advisor, was out like sounding the alarm on literally about the failing North Korea talks and policy. Last week, I think over the weekend, North Korea tested a new submarine launched ballistic missile, which is a pretty significant technological step forward. And since they hadn't actually launched an SLBM or sub uh, base missile in three years, it was clearly designed to be provocative. Uh, Then the US and North Korea sat down for talks in Stockholm for the first time in eight months over a couple days ago, those talks broke down in just a matter of hours. So like, again, it's you and I have this conversation. I have no idea what to do about this. But 
you know, Trump has basically greenlit these short range missile tests by saying, oh, I don't care because he doesn't want to look dumb and ended up not checking North Korea. But he's not like denouncing these SLBM tests, the submarine based tests. The Europeans are freaking out about it. They want, uh, you know, a UN Security Council discussion or a session on it. They're getting threatened in response by the North Koreans. And like, it just feels like no one is in charge. Like no one is focused on this huge nuclear threat getting worse by the day and potentially spiraling out of control, except John Bolton. Yeah. I think, you know, what's interesting to me in watching this, first of all, when the North Koreans test a whole bunch of shit, it's usually because they're trying to work something out, you know? So I remember the first couple, it's like, oh, they fired a projectile. Maybe mm-hmm. they're just doing it for symbolic reasons. But now we've seen a clear pattern of different tests and tests getting into pretty sensitive stuff like submarine launchers, which, by the way, if you just think about it, would not be a good thing for us, nope, you know, because nope. if the North Korean part of what we've been worried about is can they move missiles closer to us, you know, to actually reach the United States? Can they kind of expand the range of what they're able to hit? Well, if you can fire things from submarines, it does open up, you know, new yeah. possibilities. They got old uh, Russian subs that they could, you know, take over to Hawaii if they wanted. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, you know, I haven't studied the sub program, but it, it seems worrying, right? The the thing that's interesting to me is I actually assumed of all these areas where Trump has open accounts. Iran, China, North Korea, The North Korea was the one to be most likely to have some deal because Kim, like, has an interest in Trump getting reelected, right? Um, so I thought that Kim Jong-un might kind of agree mm-hmm. to something symbolic like, you know, we'll get rid of our big reactor at Yongbyon. You can come inspect it and Trump declares victory. What it seems like now is that North Korea is so comfortable that they don't even give a shit about that. I mean, to me, the most remarkable thing is that they canceled those talks, yeah. right? Because they're basically saying, well, wait a second. Why should we even agree to anything? Trump's given us a lifetime get out of jail free card here, you know? So long as Donald Trump is personally invested in the appearance of success in his diplomacy with Kim, he's not really ever going to do anything. There's not going to be another UN Security Council resolution. There's not going to be more sanctions. There's not even going to be the enforcement of the current sanctions. And so the North, it's pretty remarkable to think about this, but they're so comfortable in this kind of status quo where they've given up nothing. And in fact, they've increased their number of nuclear weapons, they've increased their testing, they've improved their missile technology. All the trend lines are moving in the direction that in any normal world would be freaking people out. But because Trump is so adamant that this is working, that they can just do that and, yeah. and give nothing away. That, that's a remarkable indictment of, of what a failure this is. Yeah, you know? don't take our word for it. Uh, read John Bolton's remarks. Uh, Two Russia things. Uh, So on Tuesday, the House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Elliot Engel tweeted out a link to a letter he'd sent to Trump's new national security advisor about something called the Open Skies Treaty. If you have never heard of this treaty, you are not alone. Uh, The gist is it helps the U.S. and our European allies monitor Russian military deployments. It was signed in 1992. It allows all the, the nations that are party to it to basically fly unarmed reconnaissance flights over the other members' territory to collect information on military activities. You can do a lot of this collection, the U.S. can at least, with satellites, but not everyone has that capability. So the whole idea is increased transparency. You could plan a, a flight path with like three days' notice. That gets vetted and agreed to a day before by all sides. The equipment use is standardized. The data collected uh, gets supplied both to the, the collector and to the country that allowed the overflight. So it's just been a, it's been a helpful tool, I think, to monitor like – uh, Russian military activity in Ukraine, for example. And so Engel's letter expresses deep concern the Trump administration is considering withdrawing from the treaty. And the question, I think, is why? So there is some rumblings that the Russians have been restricting these flights in some areas, but that doesn't seem to come close to justifying 
pulling out altogether, especially when there was no consultation with Congress or our allies or seemingly anyone on this matter. So it's like it just it's one of those ones that really makes you wonder why. It does, because the the people that this would benefit is Russia, right? They'd like to get rid of any transparency. They'd like to get rid of the predictability that's been part of kind of European security since the end of the Cold War. Our allies like this the most, our European allies, because it gives them a greater sense of that, that they know what's going on. As you mentioned, we've been able to use this in Ukraine to kind of monitor certain movements. It really, it really makes <laughs> like it's at a certain point it gets hard to escape the fact that all these things help Putin. You know, like I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist here. Like mm-hmm. it, it, whether it may not even be intentional, but if you're systematically dismantling all of these treaties that we put in place at our point of maximum leverage at the end of the Cold War so that there's no constraints. (laughs) That's a really good point. Yeah, so that there are no constraints on Russia's ability to build and test new nuclear weapons. There's no verification of what they're doing. We're getting rid of all the transparency requirements and understandings around how militaries operate. Like, that is going to benefit Russia far more than anybody else in Europe. It's just not even a close call. I, I can't for the life of me think why you would do this unless you're just so hostile to any treaty, any international agreement that you just think we should get rid of all of them, right? But uh, again, like you're also doing precisely what Vladimir Putin wants. Like you, It'd be hard to design an American foreign policy for the last three years that is more friendly to Vladimir Putin's interests than this kind of systematic dismantling of arms control treaties and arms agreements and kind of predictability around how nations operate in Europe. Like, that's what Putin wants. That should be obvious. Yeah. And let's talk about who uh, Vladimir Putin is, uh, thanks to some great reporting by The New York Times. So on on Tuesday, The Times published this fascinating story about uh, an elite secretive Russian military unit called Unit 29155 that specializes in assassination, sabotage, and espionage. Mm. Uh, The Times described their work as, quote, coordinated and ongoing campaign to destabilize Europe. The report says that the unit is responsible for an attempted coup in Montenegro in 2016, assassination attempts against a Bulgarian arms dealer, I'm sure he was nice, and an assassination attempt against a former Russian military officer named uh, Sergei Skripal, who spied on Russia and then defected to the UK and was living in London. So, Ben, this is a pretty scary story, um, showing their willingness to you know, assassinate people in, in foreign countries yeah. um, like London and cities like London. So the timing of the report is interesting, too, since we recently learned during a phone call uh, that President Trump was pressing former Prime, British Prime Minister Theresa May on the Skripal poisoning. He, I guess, spent 10 minutes telling her he didn't believe that Russia was actually responsible for it. So anyway, just an interesting sidebar. Yeah, no, it's but it's well, two things, because one is connects to what we just talked about, because one way to think about this is. People will say, well, there are all these international laws and norms and treaties, and the Russians violate them. So what do we need them anyway? Just get mm-hmm. rid of them. But that's kind of like saying because there's some people that break the law, that there should be no laws. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, we need to set the standard right. to, by which we hold Russia accountable, right? <laughs> and, you know, so getting rid of all the laws, all the treaties, just is literally a green light for this kind of behavior. I think the second thing that's important, uh, having thought about this a lot and lived through the 2016 election and the Ukraine situation and everything, it's useful to think about everything Russia's been doing in the West as, as one operation, 
you know, and what, so what do I mean by that? We tend to think of like, okay, Russia made a decision to intervene in our 2016 election, mm. and that was an operation that they did. And then, they, no, no, I think Russia made a decision, probably after Putin came back into the presidency in 2012, that they're going to go on offense into the West. And there are going to be many different dimensions to how they do that. They're going to interfere in our politics by unleashing troll armies and thousands of bots and sowing division and disinformation. They're going to hack different material and release that to, again, sow division Mm -hmm. and disinformation. They're going to potentially assassinate or poison or bully political opponents in the West, right? And and, and so if you look at it that way, it makes more sense, Mm -hmm. you know, that that this isn't a series of coincidental Russian operations. No, Russia has an operation whose objective is to weaken the West, to sow division in the West— to bully any critics or opponents that they may face emanating from the West. And they do that in lots of different ways. And one way is this kind of crack unit that might conduct even assassinations. And another way might be having a troll farm that is firing off hundreds of thousands of tweets and Facebook posts and fake news stories into the American internet ecosystem, right? And, and, And that's kind of really what we're living through, which is... And it's interesting to take it back to the China. The Chinese are trying to bully us through kind of strong-arm tactics, and the Russians are trying to do so through this kind of more insidious offense that they're undertaking. All of this necessitates a very thoughtful, coordinated U.S. response uh, in coordination with our allies. And the danger is that it's just not happening. So at a time when Russia and China are getting more ag- aggressive and assertive and pushing their kind of brand of politics and their agendas – We are lowering our defenses. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, the Russians were involved in this assassination plot in Montenegro because they wanted to prevent them from joining NATO. Yes. And then in response, we've spent the last two years, our president has shitting on NATO and attacking our NATO allies. That's a really important point you just made because that's how you connect this back. What do they not want? They don't want NATO to be strong in the United Alliance. They obviously don't want countries like Ukraine to join European and transatlantic institutions. They want... Having you know these kind of corrupt authoritarian type leaders in power in European and American uh, countries because they're easier to to cut deals with and they end up not being able to work as a cohesive unit, right? So they they want to divide the West, weaken Western institutions, undermine the credibility of the democratic model in the world, so as to maintain their power. So what they're doing is is quite logical, even if I find it reprehensible, um, and and we're just not really playing with a full deck in response. No, no, we are not. Um, Okay, let's close with the latest on our dear friend Boris Johnson over in the UK. So since we last recorded, The Guardian has printed the European Union's point-by-point rebuttal of Boris's latest Brexit plan. So bad for Boris. An oversight committee is asking Boris to explain his relationship with a woman Hmm. named Jennifer Arcuri, who Boris allowed to join him on overseas trade missions in 2014 and 2015, and whose business got tens of thousands of pounds in grant money when he was mayor of London. Seems very sketchy since she's an American. Uh, Lastly, (laughs) and this is a very sad story, there's a growing controversy in the UK. After the wife of a US diplomat was involved in a fatal car accident, and then she fled the country, Uh, she was apparently driving on the wrong side of the road and struck and killed a 19-year-old kid named Harry Dunn who was riding his motorcycle. Um, the, the UK foreign secretary has expressed frustration that this woman invoked diplomatic immunity, fled the country before she'd be questioned. So, you know, that's not a, a Boris problem until it is, because, you know, I imagine that there yeah. will be some deep and understandable frustration among British citizens who want this woman brought back and questioned in a legal proceeding. And if we fight that extradition or, you know, 
Trump bullies Boris in response, uh, it could create another political hurdle for him. So it, uh, things are not going well still. Yeah. First of all, I mean this dead, uh, unfortunately, deadly serious. Like, I really mean this. Like, I never drive in the UK in part for this reason, like that I'd get confused about what side of the road I'm on. Um, but I, 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 I'd say, you know, for Boris, um, what's the common thread between these things? It's his lack of maneuvering room. Mm-hmm. And because these things are actually connected, right? The EU plan, he, he doesn't have another plan. There's, there's, there's no, no plan. He's been promising that he's going to somehow leverage this negotiation. The EU's not going to make more concessions than they made to Theresa May. Why would they? Why do they want to make it like, look like it's easy to leave the EU and get a good deal? Why would they want to throw Ireland that's staying in the EU under the bus in these talks? So he's kind of checkmated there. Then this woman kind of speaks to the point that when you're prime minister, the kind of buffoonish behavior that you might have gotten away with in the past is going to get more scrutiny. The, the <laughs> you know? Jennifer Curry, the woman who got the yes, grants. Yeah. Yes, I, you know, so because clearly, you know, by all indications, he was in some relationship with her. Right. Um, again, when you're just kind of lovable Boris, you know, gadfly, provocateur, it's one thing. When you're prime minister, suddenly this stuff looks like a little different under harsher light. For sure. And so I think he's running into the reality of, Maybe the the same things that were the kind of rogue, charming things you know in the past suddenly look like corruption mm-hmm. when you're prime minister. And actually, the last thing with this American diplomat's wife, part of what he's promised is like he's going to have this special relationship with Trump and, and the U.S. and that's going to lead to all kinds of stuff like a new trade deal. Right. And I think what he may find is it's going to be tough to to get this woman extradited to the U.K. and and that will show that he has no real special, you know, sway here. You know, so all all these stories actually, in a strange way, do point up that the rhetoric Boris used. I'll get a better deal, right? Uh, I'll have this special relationship with the United States. And oh, by the way, I'm Boris, so the p- normal political rules don't apply to me. None of those things are proving to be true with him no. as prime minister. He can't get the better deal. There is political gravity for him more so than for Trump in, in interesting ways. And frankly, like this, Trump's not going to be able to, to bail him out. No. Boris is not uh, – it's a lot harder to be in charge than to it's be a in the It's a lot harder. Well, yeah, a lot of these people, it's a lot harder to be in charge than to just, you know, hurl insults at people. Especially when you're an unserious hack. Uh, okay, when we come back, we'll have my interview with the Washington Post Beirut Bureau Chief, Liz Sly. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. I'm Oren Siegel, and I've been fighting extremism, anti-Semitism, and hate for more than 20 years. You should subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, to get a unique perspective on the daily work and the people who have dedicated their lives to exposing, fighting, and disrupting extremism, anti-Semitism, and all forms of hate. We bring you the stories of people and communities not only impacted by hate, but who offer new perspectives and ways to push back. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. 
Ashley for the love of home. I am honored to be joined by the Washington Post Beirut Bureau Chief, Liz Sly. Liz, thank you so much for staying up late to talk with us. Thank you for having me. You interviewed a a Kurdish general last week, which was before President Trump announced that he was pulling U.S. troops out of northeastern Syria. Uh, He expressed concern that was unrelated to Trump's move that a camp in Syria was already at risk of falling under ISIS control. If Turkey does invade northeastern Syria and start to engage Kurdish forces in in combat, what do you think it means for the Kurds and for the the counter-ISIS campaign generally? Well, um, to start with the detentions, first of all, the immediate area being targeted by the Turks um, in northern Syria doesn't contain um, any of these prisons. However, the Kurds have made it very clear that um, they won't see guarding the prisons as a priority if the Turks come in. They might have to send their best men to fight the Turks. I don't believe that they will um, release any of these prisoners because the first people the um, prisoners would kill would be um, Kurds in the nearby vicinity. Um, they would be they would pay the heaviest price for that. But um, you can sort of see their point. I mean, it's the only bargaining chip they have. Please, um, you know, don't don't abandon us because look, we've got all these prisoners on our hands, yeah. and we might have to let them go. Now, in general, the Islamic State fight um, also um, could become um, could be vulnerable to any Turkish incursion. Not because the Islamic State is necessarily poised to make any kind of comeback at the moment, but the um, a Turkish incursion could trigger any kind of conflict in any kind of place. And of course, groups like the Islamic State thrive in a vacuum and they would seek to take advantage of any instability, any drawdown in Turkish forces anywhere to go and fight the, 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 the Kurds to, to try and make a comeback. Yeah. So one of your story referenced the fact that uh, I believe 12,000 members of the Syrian Democratic Forces have been killed in this anti-ISIS campaign in combat. Can you help listeners understand how the roles break down between these SDF forces, these these Kurdish or Syrian forces, and then the U.S. and the international coalition against ISIS? Like, who's doing what? Well, basically... Um Northeast Syria was taken over by a Kurdish force called the YPG, which was newly created in 2012. And it was taken over from the regime in a kind of bloodless battle. Um, The regime was up there um, fighting um, rebels and revolutionaries who were holding demonstrations and things like that. One night they kind of left and handed over a lot of bases and a lot of equipment to the Syrian Kurds. Um, The regime, government people will tell you they had a deal that the Kurds would give it back at the end of that time. Another important thing about um, this handover um, is that um, this group is actually a kind of offshoot of the PKK, which Turkey regards as a terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you fast forward to 2014, the end of 2014, and ISIS was bearing down on these Kurdish areas. Um, The U.S. jumped in eventually um, and created an outfit called the SDF, which we have seen um, from things that U.S. officials have said. They even kind of suggested, the the, the U.S. even kind of suggested the name. Um, No, 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 the U.S. didn't suggest the name, but they said that they would have come up with that name if they had thought of it. It was a U.S. idea to create a vehicle for arming the Kurds that wouldn't make Turkey angry because it wouldn't look like they were arming the PKK, if you mm-hmm. see what I mean. Mm-hmm. 
But it's kind of well known that the dominant group in this SDF and the good fighters and the ones who have really um, led the battle are the Kurdish fighters of the YPG. They've become very, very close to the US military in this time. They've cooperated extremely closely on the battlefield and they've taken a huge area back from ISIS, sort of, I mean, I don't really know how it breaks down geographically, but they sort of controlled the big chunk of Iraq and the big chunk of Syria. The YPG kind of got like half of everything they controlled back roughly. Um, at the same time, this put them in control of this huge area of Syria most of which is not even Kurdish. And so the Turks across the border have looked with absolute horror as this group they regard as a terrorist organization has been armed and um, aided by the US and appears to be establishing its own little statelets. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, these guys, um, you know, genuinely put their lives on the line with the US um, and on behalf of the US um, to get rid of ISIS and on behalf of themselves, of course. Yeah. Um, so you, um, it was sort of, in my view, an inevitability that you were going to reach a point one day where America couldn't go without a deal with Turkey that would encompass much bigger issues involving the Kurdish problem than your, you, anybody's dealing with right now. Um, Turkey was always going to go in when the U.S. left, um, and the U.S. was never really wanting to stay there for very long because it only went there to fight ISIS. So this was something that we've been sort of waiting for basically since the U.S. first went in there in 2015 and began giving these guys arms. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that's totally fair. Um, so on, on top of, you know, Erdogan's belief that the, the a lot of these Kurdish forces are a terrorist group in part because they've been fighting for an autonomous, I, I guess you'd call it a Kurdistan, like a, a state of their own for a long time. Um, he says, Erdogan says, his, his stated objective is to create a safe zone for refugees on the Syrian side of the Syria-Turkey border. Basically, that safe zone would extend the length of the border and would be about 20 miles deep. Um, this is a big if, but if if that plan didn't involve fighting with Kurdish forces who have been this bulwark against ISIS uh, and pushing them out of that region, do experts think that creating a safe zone for, for Syrian refugees is a good idea? Is this something that might be part of a long-term solution for what to do with all these folks? Well, I think anything that smacks of demographic change or demographic engineering makes um a lot of people who watch the region a little bit alarmed. Hmm. Um, we accuse governments or militias or non-state actors of demographic engineering when they do that. We remember ethnic cleansing with the Serbs when that phrase first seemed to come up. Yeah. If you deposit a large number of Arabs in an area that they are not from, which once had a mixed Arab-Kurdish population, um, under the control of a government that has... Is, is is at war with the um, effectively at war with the group that controlled with the Kurdish the, the Kurdish group that controls the area. You are go, you have a recipe for for demographic change. So um, yeah, I don't think anybody thinks that this is a good solution. Just planting Arabs in what happens to be the only Kurdish area in in Syria. It's not like Iraq. Um, a lot of people confuse it with Iraq. North northern Iraq, the three provinces that were created as Kurdistan are wholly Kurdish. Um, this area is not wholly Kurdish, but it does have a sizable population of Kurds. And there are many towns and villages there that are wholly Kurdish. And if you're going to just transplant a load of um, Arab refugees there, 
um, yeah, you set up another long-term problem that will take another hundred years to resolve. Yeah, so not a good idea by Erdogan uh, all around. (laughs) Um, So you have, you reported this, a lot of people pointed out that this isn't the first time that the Kurds have felt betrayed or abandoned by the international community. There's actually a long history of this. Can you give us uh, just a quick sense of some of that history and, and how they've been abandoned in the past? Well, the last time they said they felt abandoned was December last year when Trump said he would draw down the um, the U.S. troops from he was pulling out the U.S. troops from Iraq and I think he, from Syria and I think he said in 24 hours and there was a massive outcry and the time they felt abandoned before that was about one year before that when he also said he was pulling out um, the U.S. troops and then didn't. So there is a slight sense of Peter and the Wolf going on here at the moment. I think the Kurds are still clinging to, to some hope that the the Americans aren't really going to go anywhere or completely abandon them. But yes, the one of the if we're going backwards in time, um, one of the another of the key um, moments was the 2017 referendum. There were lots of pros and con arguments about whether the U.S. should or should not have supported the referendum or gone to the help of the Kurds when the Iraqi army marched into to Kirk. Um, but they didn't, and Kurds feel it was a great betrayal, especially as the Kurds of um, the Kurdistan region in Iraq had helped in the anti-ISIS war as well. Um, and they've been saying for some time, those Syrian Kurds are being really silly because you can't trust the Americans. Um, and, I mean, it all goes back to um, 2019, 1919, 1920, when the great great powers met to carve up the Middle East and create states. And the Americans wanted to give the Kurds a homeland. They were the only ones who recommended a nation, but they didn't fight for it. They didn't push it and they didn't get it. Yeah. You've mentioned Iraq a couple of times. So I'd like to turn there for a minute. Um, There have been pretty widespread protests uh, in Baghdad and elsewhere to protest uh, the Iraqi government. A lot of the protests have gotten violent. I've seen reports of over 100 Iraqis killed, thousands injured. Can you help us understand why people are protesting and and why the government has been able to crack down uh, with pretty brutal violence? Yeah, well, there is just such a tremendous sense of despair in Iraq. There's a government that's elected by elections, but it's not accountable in any sense of a democracy anywhere else. These guys just sit in the green zone and they sit on this vast oil wealth which they can squirrel away into their bank accounts. Iraqis haven't seen any of the country's quite substantial wealth from from the oil it pumps every day. There's a the growing power of the militias and who are in turn linked to Iran is also a huge sort of part of this anger. There's a sense that um, Guys who are beholden to a foreign country sit in the green zone and milk the wealth of the country while ordinary Iraqis on the street are left to fend for themselves and they have no recourse. And yeah, this this anger just exploded on the street and it does it every now and then. There was a huge explosion in Baza last year um, and it didn't spread to Baghdad, but this year it hit Baghdad and it's been really, really severe. I'm quite I think it's a shame it hasn't had more media coverage, actually, because um, you've seen an incredible amount of violence on the streets. And it really reminds you that Iraq is a tinderbox still after all this time. Yeah. Is is the U.S. engaged in any way that's meaningful to try to mediate or, or help resolve some of the underlying tensions? Well, I haven't seen anything. I'm, I was just hooked on it last week. I spent so much time in Iraq. I was just amazed by what was happening. And and then I got d- diverted by this Turkey Syria stuff. Yeah. But I have not seen like a Pompeo phone call or any evidence of any American engagement in that situation. 
it really feels like America's washed its hands of Iraq. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, I, I've been looking for any sort of evidence of engagement, too. And I, all I saw, honestly, was this call with Erdogan. And I wondered what was that all about? And uh, things have gotten way worse <laughs> since that yes. moment. But, well, listen, I just want to say thank you so much for doing the show. Everyone should read your stuff in the Washington Post and follow you on Twitter. It's just at Liz Sly. Um, but thank you for uh, helping us understand what's happening on the ground. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Liz Sly, for joining the show today. Ben, thank you. Yeah. Okay. For uh, all the Who NBA knows? hot takes. Did you see Ennis's tweet about this? Ennis was on message. Well, he and nailed it. And Ennis made a good point. The NBA totally backed him up mm-hmm. when he got in a fight with an authoritarian government. And so when they didn't back up Mori, the only difference between Turkey and China is there's more money in China. Right. So it did kind of just highlight the problem here. Yep. You know? uh, yeah. But it was good to see Ennis applying a consistent standard. Yeah. Ennis has uh, got to be one of my new favorite NBA players. He's a Boston Celtic. Oh, yeah, he, that's right. He yeah. hates yeah. sleeves with a reckless yeah. abandon. Well, if you had guns like that, man. He looks uh, yoked. And, uh, yeah, and the NRA should back him. Okay, <laughs> thank you guys for listening. Talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nara Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.